This podcast is brought to you by Exergo Technologies, providing some of the most affordable and portable sports science technology on the market. Made by coaches for coaches. Stop guessing, start assessing. Produced from the Cube Studios, this is Strong by Science. In-depth conversations about science-based training, sports performance, and all things health and wellness. Here's your host, Max Schmarzo. What's up, guys? This is Max Schmarzo here again with the Strong by Science podcast. And today, it's going to be me, myself, and I in part two of our Q&A Honestly, I got no idea how many parts we're going to have of this, and that's because this question list keeps growing and growing, so we'll just keep continuing to call it part whatever, and as long as, long as you guys keep sending me questions, I'm going to keep doing my best to answer them. So uh, let's not waste any time here. Let's dive straight into it and start rattling off some questions and hopefully some answers that are worth a darn. First question. Concurrent training is it possible to develop specific qualities while performing concurrent training so yes is the very short answer but i think we need to define concurrent training before we kind of dive into the weeds concurrent training has a many different meanings so one person might think concurrent in the macro sense and one person might label concurrent in the micro sense so for those of you not aware with what concurrent training is and why this question came up concurrent training is basically the idea that you might be training one quality say power and maybe another quality like aerobic capacity under the uh, or at the same time within a given cycle possibly day week you know whatever the periodized program is and the question is, are those adaptations conflicting? Um, so to better answer this question, let's tackle it one step at a time. Let's first look at concurrent training in the weekly sense. So this is where maybe one day you have a specific quality being trained, and the next day you have another specific quality being trained. I see no reason why adaptation cannot occur. Now, is adapt adaptation ever going to occur optimally under these kind of concurrent conditions for a specific quality? Maybe not. There's some argument. Um, some people believe that we really need to be periodized with our certain programming and we need to have phase potentiation between programs. So that's the idea that we might do uh, a, you know, a basic GPP block, a hypertrophy block, a strength block, and then a power block. The unfortunate reality is we, we don't live in a world that allows for highly uh, regimented programs like that and rigid programs. A lot of it has to do with the fact that if we're training an individual, an athlete, and that athlete has other things they want to do in their life, they shouldn't feel like they can't play the sport that they love because they're in a certain period of their training. So, for example, if it's, oh, it's a strength period, well, great, that's awesome, but theoretically speaking, or hypothetically speaking, if that person were to go and play basketball, that would be a conflicting uh, training stimulus towards strength training because especially if you ever played open gym basketball, you play for like three hours. It's highly aerobic. 
and in the traditional sense, strength training and, and aer- wow, aerobic. Ma- I can't speak. Strength training and aerobic adaptations are considered to be, you know, budding heads. They're uh, not compatible with each other. However, are the, all the sports that we typically do are typ- uh, quite varied in nature, and so. The way I answer this question, and to not, you know, speak in circles here, is that it really depends on the situation, depends on what kind of concurrent training you're doing. If in one workout you try touching on all the stimuli, or yeah, stimuli possible that you could have, aerobic, power, capacity, strength, and all this thing, all these things at once, then it's possible that you might not be getting the most bang for your buck. You might be better served having a specific day dedicated towards a specific quality. You might even be better served if you had the ability to have certain regimented periodization. Again, unfortunately, regimented periodization might not be realistic in the, in the setting or situation that you're in. That way, having theme days where you're having a power day, a strength day, an aerobic day, a work capacity day, can be performed still, but you perform it in a way that makes sense. So maybe you have a power day that potentiates the ability for the strength day. You don't have the strength day the day after the power day. Maybe you alternate legs um, and upper body, and you have certain splits that allow for you to target certain qualities a little better. Then maybe we put that in conjunction um, with logical progression. You can still get adaptations. Again, not to say it's not okay to have periodized programs, just saying that concurrent training does have the ability to make people stronger, make people more powerful, improve their work capacity, especially if they're not at a high, high, high level of training age. Most athletes, especially basketball, I'm biased, I played basketball, are a very low training age. We, culturally in the basketball world we don't lift weights in high school not like a football player and in college we reluctantly lift weights and so athletes who have a lower training age based on some of the uh, you know Russian studies they used to have or they did have and some of the periodization textbooks when you have a lower training age you can get away with a little bit more however as you become um, more specific in your training age, training age in regards to that stimulus. So I'm just not talking about chronological age, but how long you've been in the weight room under a specific training program. Then maybe the periodization itself becomes more specific and more geared towards uh, individual qualities and less concurrent in nature. So long answer is yes, you can adapt and get adaptations with concurrent training, but you need to have context to the situation. And maybe it's not as optimal as possible. Short answer is yes, and it depends. So to piggyback off of that question, the follow-up question would be, or not follow-up question, but I guess a second question, which is kind of related to concurrent training um, or just periodization in general, is velocity-based training. When do you use it? How do you use it? And what do you do if you don't have a velocity, you know, measuring device with you? So we'll tackle this one at a time. Um, Velocity-based training 
can be used at any point in time. And there's a big misconception with the name itself. Velocity-based training doesn't mean high-velocity training. It means you're using velocity as a means to monitor the training load itself. You could use a, ten, a tendo unit and have, maybe be measuring bar velocity during your aerobic capacity, during your power capacity, during your strength phase, during your GPP phase. There's, no, there's nothing telling you you can't do that. It helps for auto regulation. So if you know how heavy a load's supposed to be moved at, then you can understand that maybe this load that I thought was going to be related to 70% of my one rep max is actually moving slower than expected or maybe related to my, whatever percent that is, it might be not moving at the speed you expected it to. So using velocity measuring devices is not by any means stuck to being in a high velocity program. Yes, they are used typically and most commonly seen in a high velocity program, but you can use them in any sort of training block. And so the reason why you might use velocity-based training, you might use it for auto-regulation. Auto-regulation meaning that you prescribe a load that you expect to be moved at a given velocity. Then you see if that load is actually related to that velocity that day. And if it's not, maybe you train up, you know, train as you expected to train or you reduce the load a little bit. So it allows you to regulate your training loads. This can also be used for number of reps and sets. You can also use um, measuring the bar speed itself as a means of motivation. Maybe I want to make sure that athlete is putting forth maximal effort every rep. And then you can also use uh, the velocity-based training or the, the tendo unit, whatever you're using to measure the, how fast the bar is moving, to be um, essentially quantifying what you can't otherwise. And what I mean by that, that's typically what you see with the light load training. So if we're using a sub-maximal load, we don't know how fast fast is. You can tell an athlete, you know, move that as fast as you can. Move it with the most intent you possibly can have. But that doesn't guarantee they're going to move it with the most intent. Neither does having a bar velocity output back, output or feedback, but it at least allows you as the coach and the athlete to understand what is a fast rep, what speed that actually is, and whether or not it's being attained, obtained. So velocity-based training can be used for all those reasons. On top of that, velocity-based training can also be used as a means to measure um, certain capacity thresholds. So maybe you have an individual who is uh, training to increase power capacity. So you might have them do X number of reps <clears throat> with a 10% drop-off in speed. You're trying to, at a given weight, and then you're trying to see, can we get more reps before we have a certain drop-off at speed? So that is uh, another way you can use velocity-based training. Now, here's a great question. What happens if I don't have you know, any of these Tendo units, any devices to measure uh, bar speed or something like that? Well, obviously, there's the coach's eye. And that doesn't even need to be said, I guess, from my end because that's pretty obvious. But let's say we're doing... Um, like hang clean, hang clean is a good example here. You can see how high someone catches the bar as a means to measure velocity. And now obviously you're not measuring velocity, but at least to compare to. So, okay, 
let's use like 135, 135 pounds, and see if we can do five reps without having to catch it in a uh, bent position or in deep position. Maybe you start to increase capacity by measuring how many times they can do, you know, a high pull up to their collarbone. Maybe you do it how many times they can clean in a, you know, in an upright position because that second pull is dictated by the velocity that you're producing. Maybe you use a box and you say, I want you to do as many jumps as you can onto this box with a straight leg landing until you can't do it anymore. You have to bend your knees. Now jump heights dictated by takeoff velocity. So in essence, what we're doing now is using a means of velocity based training or monitoring to uh, actually measure output. And again, I'm gonna take a step back here because I just reminded myself as I talk through this, that there's a difference between velocity-based monitoring and velocity-based training. Because what you might do is you might not actually use the velocity bar measuring device in your training at all, because you might not have that many of them. It might get in the way of your programming. You might not be a fan of it, whatever it is. But you can still monitor movement with velocity, even if you just do it at the end of your warm-up. For example, let's say you have every athlete in that weight room squat 225 pounds, assuming they're a strong group. You tell them, okay, at the end of your warm-up, let's see how fast you can move 225 pounds. Now you record that and you have them do it every week. And now you begin monitoring their progress that you otherwise would not be able to with velocities of that bar speed. So this is velocity-based monitoring. This allows you to track maybe one, two, three loads, whatever you want to do with it, but it gives you the creative freedom to now determine progress in a means that otherwise wouldn't be possible. Then there's also velocity-based assessments. And this is where you use velocity-based testing, the bar speed, to maybe predict someone's one rep max. And so what you can do there is you can use loads between 35 and like 75% of their one RM. You can do about four to five sets, three to two reps, sorry, two to three reps per set, making sure they have adequate rest in between. And now you can predict based on that linear relationship between load and velocity, what someone's one rep max should be. And if you're doing a bench press, that's roughly one rep max occurs at a minimal voluntary threshold. That's a fancy word for saying the speed at which the one rep max occurs at is at zero at one point, sorry, 0 0.15 meters a second, roughly. And then the squat is about 0 0.35, 0 0.3 ish. And it kind of depends a little bit as to whether or not uh, someone is a grinder. So someone who knows how to produce force into the bar for an extended period of time or not uh, obviously lifting weights is a skill. And sometimes those high level strength athletes really know how to grind out a weight. Um, to give credit to uh, Jeff Rowland here out of uh, he's out in Siri Canada, an awesome physio I was talking with, and he showed me, I'm not sure the name of the book, but they were looking at using the slope between load and velocity of a non-ballistic movement, so like a squat, a bench press, and then using that slope value to dictate whether or not that person is a, you know, a high, high force guy or a high velocity guy to help guide training a little bit. And so what I mean by that is if you take the load and the velocity, you plot it on an XY axis, you now have a slope because the relationship between those are pretty linear. You can take that slope as a means to understand how fast does someone begin to lose velocity as the weight increases. That allows you then to maybe profile that individual based on the slope and certain slopes might indicate certain qualities of strength 
whether it's high velocity individual or a uh, more of a grinder who can handle those heavier loads and uh, you know handle a little more of the the strength side. Basically, learn how uh, knowing how to grind it all out. So hopefully that kind of ties those two in because you can use velocity-based training to monitor progress of certain periodization models. So you might use velocities at given loads and certain capacities or maybe profile them, assess them, however you might want to do it. But you put that on top of all of your programming. So now you can measure, does my concurrent training actually work? Do I need a more periodized program? Do I need something that's more flexible, more rigid, whatever it may be? Having that constant feedback allows you to dictate a lot of your decision-making not dictate, I take that back. It allows you to augment your decision-making. So it facilitates you and gives you more information than you would otherwise. Awesome. Great question. I like those two. Um, oh, here's, a, here's a different question here. This one's a little bit more on the nutrition side. I enjoy these nutrition questions. Um, but again, I'm not a nutritionist. I'm not a registered dietitian. So I, I give my hack at it and my best input. But I always advise whenever I talk about anything nutrition-wise that you dive into it as well yourself and formulate your own opinions because the, uh, the nutrition world, just like strength conditioning or I guess any other world out there, is typically uh, very divided. So the question is, what is intermittent fasting and how can it be used? So intermittent fasting is, a uh, by nature, an ill-defined term. So intermittent fasting, in short, means... I'm going to eat within a specific window I've given myself. So you might fast for fast by not eating 12 hours, 14 hours, 16 hours, 18 hours, whatever it may be. And then you're going to consume your food during that window of maybe eight hours, 10 hours, six hours, 12 hours. So the question becomes though, right? If that's the definition of intermittent fasting, well, that doesn't provide any context into what kind of food I'm eating when I'm eating it. Um, how many calories I'm eating, and what the food itself is coming from. So that is, <laughs> intermittent fasting, the, the, the hot phrase is typically done for autophagy. And so people, uh, that's kind of tossed around quite a bit and unfortunately has been monetized. There's a lot of good science behind autophagy and how it helps the immune system and how it can help with um, a lot of the organelles being replaced or uh, essentially uh, the very short version of it is it kind of cleans shop. It, it helps um, take care of maybe some of those organelles that aren't functioning as optimally as they could be. Now, when someone's fasting, though, let's look at it in terms of why it's being utilized in the research and also why it's be maybe utilized or misutilized by individuals in the performance field. So in the research, intermittent fasting is typically used for a very specific reason under specific guidance with context to that individual and being monitored closely. So maybe that person is fasting for an X number of time. And sometimes some of these fasts are like two days. Um, they have like a five day fasting mimicking protocol by Prolon, which is, by the way, I hope to have those guys on here at some point in time. Very cool concept. But that's all done under a very, under guidance with a specific reason. And they're still getting certain nutrients. And so, when people, I think, hear intermittent fasting, they typically associate that with, oh, I'm going to, you know, eat less food in general. So when you see a lot of these weight loss gains or weight loss gains, weight loss uh, success stories from intermittent fasting, well, maybe it's just because you're eating less and it's not intermittent fasting doing something magical. 
right? If you shrink your time window that you can only eat eight hours and you want to work out still, well, if you're going to work out for an hour, you want to make sure you probably eat before that workout. And you want to make sure you don't eat too much food, that you're not so bloated that you can't work out. So now really you're only eating within a seven-hour window with constraints within that window itself. So that's typically, um, you hear that quite a bit, intermittent fasting, but then there's not always the detail of, am I getting the right nutrients in? Am I getting the right vitamins in? Um, am I getting the right, uh, you know, a full healthy uh, assortment of foods? It doesn't, and it also doesn't um, mean ketogenic diet either. I think for some reason the school of intermittent fasting is sometimes associated with a ketogenic diet or a low-carb diet. Now, there are benefits for both for certain reasons at certain times. If you look at the research, it's very specific. Whether it's cognitive aspects, whether it's, um, I think it was originally made for a lot of the seizure aspects as well, and that has to do with ketone bodies being used in the brain versus glucose. Um, and I think it's specifically looking at some of the brain metabolism. They looked at ketogenic diets for migraines and how that could potentially be beneficial as an alternate food source. They've also looked at, um, you know, exogenous ketones that could possibly help. So maybe we don't have to go in a ketogenic diet, but maybe we have, uh, it's like a, what is it, HMBM, hydroxymethylbutyrate. Um, it's an exogenous ketone. And just maybe you also use to take like a short chain fatty, wow, a short chain fatty acids like butyrate. I was just reading a study about recently, which is why I'm kind of mentioning this. Um, and they're looking at that in regards to possible synergistic nature to help with some of the cognitive aspects or uh, reducing, um, you know, headaches. That's a very specific reason. That's not the same reason that you often hear in regards to, oh, you have to, uh, you know, intermittently fast, again, which is sometimes associated with ketogenic diet. It's not always. But it's not always taken in context to that individual. So just to give a, uh, a math breakdown of intermittent fasting, and let's say you want to intermittent fast while you're working out often, and let's say somehow you're going to get the calories that you need, and let's say you're a high-level athlete. Now you're going to be training probably two hours in a day, and you probably want to eat within that window of training. So you might want to put your training, sorry, in that window of eating so you can have fuel and feel like you're ready to train. So now that you are you're eating, so you're training within that eight hour window. Well, you only got six hours. If you need 4,000 calories, originally you had an eight hour window. <clears throat> and we're going to assume that you can eat somehow during training. Well, you need now roughly 500 calories every hour, right? And if you're training for two hours, that means somehow you need to eat a thousand calories within that training cycle, within that session. And so mathematically it just kind of appears to be a little difficult unless it's controlled, right? And it's for a specific reason with a specific outcome in mind and you have guidance from an individual who's overseeing that process to make sure that's going properly. Um, again, I think some of these terms are tossed around, whether it's for the monetization aspect to make it sound cool. Oh, you need ketone bodies. Oh, you need uh, intermittent fasting, autophagy. And unfortunately, the, the research behind it is really good and the research is very interesting and quite contextual for specific cases. And just like the research for anything at all, but a lot of that um, has to be understood that the minute our capitalistic market gets the hands on, gets their hands on it, at times maybe we want to push it one way or the other for the sake of money. And so, if I, I advise that anytime you're seeking out this kind of information, you might want to dive into it. Go see a professional, see someone who knows what they're doing, has dealt with individuals who have done this protocol before, 
and they're versed enough to provide you with the information that you can get through it in a healthy, successful way. So this is going to piggyback right into the next question. And it says, what are your thoughts on biohacking? <laughs> um, first and foremost, I, I get it. I understand why people want to biohack. It sounds like, oh, you know, I can get a shortcut around eating all the dog crap I eat currently. I can run my crappy lifestyle. <clears throat> really, biohacking should just be called health optimization. And it should be looking at what am I currently doing poorly? Maybe your best form of biohacking is sleeping more. Or maybe your best form of biohacking hacking is drinking more water. Biohacking to me isn't the, oh, I'm going to take this certain supplement and now I can perform all my crappy lifestyle habits. It's much more of a holistic approach. And unfortunately, the term biohacking, again, it's probably been monetized. It's probably been tossed around to bring in interest. Naturally, it's done a good job. People are interested in it. But unfortunately, I think it implies that we can do certain things and get around certain issues without actually having to address the root issues. So I like to think of it not as biohacking, but much more like bio-understanding or bio-quantification. And what I mean by that is maybe you go get your blood work done for, you know, looking at micronutrients and not, I'm not doing that so I can, you know, understand like what certain supplement can I take to get around these issues, <clears throat> but maybe it's a serious issue where I have a vitamin D deficiency. We know we have a vitamin D deficiency uh, that can lead to certain uh, skeletal muscle issues or even skeletal issues. We're talking about the inability to properly absorb calcium now, and maybe that is going to be a root cause of maybe some bone issue I might have down the road or uh, my longevity, my health, vitamin D plays a role in tons of other factors outside of calcium absorption, but it has, you know, a prominent role in that as well. So is that biohacking or is that understanding my physiology and that I need to take something to make myself a little bit better, right? Biohacking sounds like we can just have this shortcut and get around it. But when you talk about health quantification, it sounds like a much more burdensome task that's a lot less exciting than biohacking. And it sounds like, oh, you know, my deep sleep sucks because I don't sleep at all. So instead of trying to find, um, you know, a shortcut to sleeping more, maybe I just have better uh, sleep habits and I have you know, a room at a cold temperature with the blue light blocked, uh, turned off two hours before. And maybe I have tape on my alarm clock when I travel because that um, gives off excess light that might be uh, irritating myself when I sleep. What are my wind down habits? Am I breathing properly before I go to bed? Um, all these, you know, do I not use my phone in bed? There's no TV in the bedroom. All these things can help you sleep better. So is that, you know, biohacking or is that more like health quantification? Because I understand that my sleep is crap and now I can act on that information. So that's where some of this information such as uh, sleep quality, movement quality, physical exercise, uh, performance qualities, your, obviously your nutrition qualities as well, all can be labeled biohacking or bio-quantification because you're beginning to understand how your body works so you can make it a little bit better. And it's providing the blueprint of your body in a way you otherwise couldn't, and that's going to help you quite possibly in a way to be proactive in the future. So I, I, I appreciate the concept of biohacking. I like the fact that people become very interested in their body. They want to know how they move. They want to know how they sleep. They want to know how that affects their life. They want to know how to perform better throughout the day. They don't maybe want the uh, crappy lifestyle. I'm not take that back. The crappy food choices. 
But it doesn't mean we get to have the crappy lifestyle still. We don't get to have all these other things going on just because we're taking a couple of supplements that we read in a magazine that were quote-unquote biohacking, and now we can still stay up late. We still drink uh, too much alcohol. You eat too many refined sugars, and you have a poor outcome. Maybe it's your, your form of biohacking is eating more servings of vegetables. Um, maybe taking supplements and when you need to. Maybe uh, going for actual exercise and working out. Those can be all biohacking methods, but really it's just understand your body, where you need help, where you need assistance, and what you can do physically to get around, not around, to solve some of those possible issues. Um, so hopefully that answers the question on a, my opinion on a biohacking. Cause again, that word is, I get it. It's kind of a sexy, cool term. Like, Ooh, biohacking get a shortcut around, you know, my current issues and what I have going on. But maybe I just want bio quantification. I want to understand what's going on so I can act proactively in it. If you look at that from a training standpoint, every coach is already trying to do that. Every coach is trying to understand how you move, how you perform, what areas you can specifically develop to get better at. But now we're taking that and we're applying it to our life, our understanding of where can I get better. So we do this innately as coaches. We understand how someone moves. We want to understand their profile better. We want to understand how to assess them. Now it's that same concept. But maybe as a strength coach, you don't have the ability to address all those different disciplines. So you find a different individual to refer to. And not to go on a rant here, like that's why it's so important to have A, an open mind, but B, you know, a connective web of individuals that you can communicate with. Because maybe there is a situation where you need to refer to someone. You need to get them in the hands of an individual who is going to be able to to act in their expert field to help that person. So I don't like the idea of, oh, you know, everyone should know everything about everything. No, no, they're experts for a reason, right? You know, I, I don't go to my dentist to get blood pressure medication. I don't take blood pressure medication, but if I did in that idea, or I don't go to my, uh, my doctor so they can give me a periodized program for weight training, so it's like, okay, how can I meet individuals, connect with individuals, and create a network of individuals that we can communicate with? So if a situation does come up, I am versed enough to be able to understand the situation has come up, and I'm smart enough to know I need to refer to someone. Now you might be interested in understanding more, right? I'm totally at fault for that too. Uh, I love learning about um, the nutrition side, the physiology side, understanding how our body works at a biochemistry level. By no means am I qualified to uh, work with an individual one-on-one. -on -one. Maybe someday I will be from a nutrition standpoint, but I'm, I'm not that standpoint right now. And being self-aware that I'm not allows me to reach out for help. Am I willing to share information that I have read um, and what I have informed opinions on? Sure. Is that information merely opinion and not application? Yes. So I think that's also important too. I'm not against anyone trying to learn more of a different field. I want people to try and better understand different fields, different disciplines, get better understanding of how things work. That's totally awesome. You're allowed to share your journey as you learn, as you grow. You might make mistakes. 
you might learn one thing and change your mind either. I would think it was Mike Boyle said he, you know, it'd be more, he, I think he changed his mind in one of his books on how he trains people. People got up in arms about it, but he's like, yo, if I don't train my, you know, if I don't change my mind, that's probably concerning. And so I'm open to people sharing <clears throat> their information of what they've learned. I think it does get concerning where, you know, we have people trying to make these direct interventions one-on-one -on -one versus a collaborative effort where people can prefer out and get better understanding of that, what that individual actually needs. <clears throat> so let's see. Uh, I think that's going to cover the questions for today. I don't want, if I open another can of worms, we have a whole slew of other questions here. It's about a, that was a good list left. And I know if I dive into it, I'm not going to stop talking. And so I want to give you guys uh, bits and pieces of this as we go through, because as I answer these questions, maybe it provokes new ones. Maybe you have a new question about a different area. Maybe I didn't answer that question to the best that I could. Shoot me a message. Hey, can you go into this specific aspect uh, of that Q&A? You know, I liked when you talked about this. You glossed over this portion. What does that mean? Maybe you want um, something that is... Uh, either in more detail or less detail, like where are you getting this information from? Like where can I get this information from? Um, are there certain places or individuals you, you reference out for people to uh, learn from? All, all that works for me. I just want to hear what you guys want. Um, if you guys have certain questions that were partially answered, weren't answered at all, maybe you didn't ask yet, feel free to shoot me a direct message on Instagram. I'm going to make another post on my story coming up here on, on my page as well asking about people who wants a Q&A and then uh, we can get that rolling from there if people have questions. Really appreciate you guys listening to it. I'm really excited where this podcast is going. Um, couldn't thank you all enough. It's been uh, great feedback and great support uh, to the individuals that have been reaching out and uh, send me some of those messages of, you know, things they want to hear more about, that things they like, people sharing it on their stories, sharing it on their Twitter, on their Facebook um, on their Instagram, on their LinkedIn, wherever, I'm totally okay with. Really appreciate all of it. The more that this thing grows, the better people we can get on here. We have some really exciting individuals coming up in the near future that I'm, I'm, I'm pretty excited about. I'm pretty honored that they're willing to come on to this uh, podcast here. And uh, hopefully you guys enjoy what we have in the future. I appreciate y'all. Thank you. Thank you.